It's good to have you with us today at Blue Valley Antioch. We uh, hope that uh, you've had a good morning of, of study and Sunday school, and then also you've had a, a good time of worship with us here uh, this afternoon. Let me just tell you the highlight of my week. The highlight of my week and Julie's week, every single week, is on Saturday, 3.30, 4 o'clock, when uh, our grandkids FaceTime us. I mean, we absolutely love that. We kind of look at our clock. Do you think they're going to call here in a minute? And man, we sit down and we love it. We absolutely love it. Right now, my granddaughter uh, is at an age, and my grandson is at an age where he's imitating everything his older sister does. My granddaughter is at an age that when the FaceTime screen comes up, she's doing this and laughing. And she's saying, you know, you can't see me. I'm not here. And we play along. Where's June? Where's June? And then here we are. Oh, it's hysterical every single time. It's absolutely hysterical. We love it, love it so much. I mean, I know that, uh, that a lot of you in this room are not yet grandparents. Some of you are not. That it's a good thing. It's way better than being a parent. I'm just telling you that right now. Way, way better than being a parent. But it does cause you to stop and, and reflect on when your children were that age. And I found myself recently thinking about a time when my son was a toddler. I was a student minister at a church in Tennessee, actually the church where Pastor Micah's father, Drew, was the pastor and I was his youth minister. And that, that church building where I worked was beautiful and stately and I mean it was classically southern. I'm talking, you know, red brick, massive white steeple and also this gorgeous two-story foyer, I mean, had these steps going up to the second level where all the wedding photographers got their money shot, you know, and, and lots of wood and lots of seating areas. And for my toddler son, most importantly, lots and lots of space to run. And one Sunday night after church, he was toddling around that expansive foyer to his heart's absolute content, asserting his independence from dad, refusing to stay close. He was exploring that space without a care in the world. So when a mysterious door slid open in the wall, revealing a previously unknown chamber, the opportunity to explore this new space proved irresistible, and he ran into this magical room in a hole in the wall. And knowing what would happen, because I'm that parent, I let him go. And just about the time he entered this magical new space, the elevator door shut <laughs> behind him. And I just let it shut, and I let him stew in his newfound freedom for a moment, and in that magical, teachable moment between surprise and terror, I hit the button on the wall and opened the door to find a wide-eyed toddler suddenly very interested, staying close to his father. Now, he won't remember that. He was too young to possibly remember that, but I believe that might have been the first time that Caleb, my son, experienced what it was like to be alone. Adam being alone is the first thing that the Bible says is not good about God's good creation. 
Even those of us who are drawn to solitude recognize that it's only good in managed portions. I mean, I absolutely love and crave time by myself, but I always, always am drawn to come back to my people, to come back to my family, and come back to my friends. I never want to be truly alone. God said being alone is not good. Frankly, it can be just a little bit scary. And that's especially true when it comes to our connection with God. When we feel alone from God, when we feel cut off from Him, the fear and the frustration, let's be honest, the anger can be overwhelming. The Psalms of the Old Testament are filled with cries of loneliness. Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 28 begins with, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent, I become like those who go down to the pit. In Psalm 44, 23, we read, Awake! Why are you sleeping, Lord? Alone is not good. And in those moments where we wonder aloud like the psalmist, where is God? We are wondering, what is he up to? Surely those thoughts were on the minds of the people of Israel when we find them in Exodus 2. And that's what we're going to spend time thinking on today. If you would please open your Bibles to Exodus 2 as we continue our brand new series of messages through the book of Exodus. God had brought the people of Israel into Egypt to, to save them from death. A famine was ravaging the entire region, and God had brought the family of Jacob into the land of the Egyptian kings, the pharaohs, because one of their very own, Joseph, had risen to prominence by God's hand in Egypt and had stockpiled grain during times of plenty so that there would be food to eat in times of want. And the people of Israel found their rescue there and they flourished there in their new home. Too much so, it seems, for Pharaoh's liking. And so he enslaved the foreigners. And when they continued to flourish numerically and became a threat, he issued an edict that all the male children born to the Jews, be killed. In Exodus 1, which Pastor Jonathan preached from last week, gave us kind of a 30,000-foot view of those events. But Exodus chapter 2 surveys the Jewish travail from the ground level, telling us what this terror looked like to one Jewish family. The story is likely familiar to all of us, even if we don't consider ourselves church people. But I want you to lay aside what you think you know about the events of Exodus 2, and I want you to enter, if you can, the drama of it. God's people are under siege. Their very existence is at stake. God is seemingly nowhere to be found. They are alone. And all of this had a very real and terrifying consequence on this little family. I want you to feel that and ask yourself as we begin walking through Exodus 2, what is God up to? And so we begin in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took 
as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that it was a fine child, she hid him three months. Why? Because of the king's edict to to kill children like hers. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and and pitch. And she, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Can you imagine what kind of terror you would have to be in as a parent to put your child in a basket and then place that basket on the Nile River? This was a hopeless situation for her. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. What's going to happen to my little brother? Do you feel it? I mean, this is where they are. What's going to happen to my little brother? And the daughter of Pharaoh, the one who had issued the decree to kill little brothers, came down to bathe at the river. Oh, no. While while her young women walked beside the river, there, there are a lot of eyes on the river. And the daughter of Pharaoh, the one who had said, kill all the little brothers, saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Can you... Can you imagine how the heart of the little girl collapsed? And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. Okay, well, maybe this is, maybe this is not going to turn out badly. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? What a smart little girl to seize that opportunity to save her brother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, so the girl went and got the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, her son, and nursed him. He's not been lost. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, obviously, this is not the life that, that the parents would have envisioned for their child. They had to remain anonymous from him, and he was going to go live with other people, but he was alive. He was alive, and he's born to Jewish parents committed to do anything possible to keep him alive, and he is going to be okay. But God's name if you noticed, is not mentioned in these verses. No one seems to attribute the good fortune that has befallen them on anything more than blind luck in a smart little girl. And even if the child's parents do see God's hand in this, they don't give him praise. And we will see as we go through Exodus when God does something, the people praise him. There's no praise here. God still seems, it would seem, to be distant in the eyes of the Jewish couple. It's good the child is safe and close, but if God had anything to do with it, what could he possibly be doing in placing this child in a pagan home? The first 10 verses of Exodus 2 narrow the focus of Exodus 1 from the Jewish nation to this Jewish family, and the next verses in Exodus 2 narrow the focus even further to this Jewish son, Moses. And I want you to follow along beginning in verse 11. One day... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he looked this way and that, 
seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. He killed him, and he hid him in the sand. Again, what is God up to? We're given tantalizing details in those verses without any kind of explanation. Notice in verse 11 that we are told that Moses went out to his people. How did he know they were his people? He encountered a Hebrew being beaten, and he is referred to as one of his people. Are we being told that Moses knew at this point of his Hebrew heritage? Maybe. Or are we being told that Moses was developing a heart of compassion for the enslaved Hebrews because he was just a good man? Interesting note here, the word fine back in in verse 2 is most commonly translated in our English versions of the Old Testament as the word good with the idea usually being morally good. So maybe he was just being a good guy and said that's not right and took matters into his own hands. There's just no way to know what his people meant. And any claim to know definitively is just pure speculation. So again, take yourself out of what you know is about to happen and put yourself in the the sandals of the enslaved Hebrew people. Moses taking up for his people is just another random ray of light like a a Pharaoh's daughter having compassion on a found baby, like a sister being smart. But they still believe themselves to be alone, save for this now powerful, influential advocate for their well-being. Maybe something's going to come with that, but all of that gets squashed in 24 hours. Look at verse 13. When he went out, when Moses went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, well, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We didn't hide them well enough. Somebody saw what I did. Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. But maybe not. Maybe not. But then verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, He sought to kill Moses. Man, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. So Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian. Now, that's not like saying, okay, I left Overland Park to go to Olathe. All right? I mean, he, he, he got off the map practically. I mean, he got far, far away. And at the end of that journey, he sat down by a well. Now, The priest of Midian, we're not told priest of who or what, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. Why would they do that? Well, these were women. They were second-class citizens, third-class citizens, better barely than the livestock that they were watering, and they were male shepherds, and they had a right, so they just ran them off. This was something, as we will see, that they were used to. But Moses stood up and saved them. He says, you won't do that. They were here first. And he watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, how is it you come back so soon today? See, he expected it to take a while because he had daughters. And daughters had to take uh, their turn among the men bringing the flocks in. How did you get back so quickly? They said, an Egyptian. Moses is presenting himself, introducing himself, carrying himself, not as a Hebrew, as an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and drew water for us. And we watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left this man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with a man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. 
And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Get what's happened. This guy who maybe was a ray of light, I mean, he's going to help us, is now a goat herder on the backside of nowhere. And he's settling down. And he's starting a family. And he's having children. His life seems okay. But the Jewish people still had no reason to believe that God was doing anything for them. More than ever, they felt alone and they felt abandoned by God. What, if anything, is God up to? And we finally get answers in the closing verses of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, the one who was seeking Pharaoh's, or Moses' life. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. It seems to have gotten worse. And they cried out for help. Someone, God, help us. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And then here it is. Great news if you're Jewish. Bad news if you're an Egyptian. God knew. God knew. Back in Egypt... Things may have gotten worse, but then suddenly we're told that God has been up to something. And suddenly we know that the seemingly random bits of good news that have shown up in Exodus 2 weren't random bits of good news at all. God was up to something. And the reason is because of his covenant with Abraham. Now, to those of you who don't come from a faith background, and maybe for more than a few of you who do, me talking about the covenant of Abraham can make me start to sound a little like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, wah, wah. Just a bunch of mumbling. Yeah, you're, you're going to have a hard time, you think, tracking with me. The words covenant mean almost nothing to you. Covenant with Abraham, even less. You may be vaguely aware that Abraham is something like the, the George Washington of the Jewish people. And you may know something about God's involvement in somehow making Abraham the George Washington of the Jewish people, but you may not appreciate the richness of what covenant with Abraham means. So let me try to put it as simply as I can so that we can all grab hold of the very important thing that is being said here. A covenant is an agreement between two parties where each party promises to do their part to keep the agreement in force. In, in Hebrew, these agreements were not said to be made, they were said to be cut. To enact a covenant was to cut a covenant. Uh, that's a, a fairly literal rendering of what is, is taking place when we see those words in the Old Testament. Because that is literally actually what take place. An animal was sacrificed. When two parties came to an agreement, an animal was sacrificed and then cut right in two and put on either sides to create, uh, I'm sorry, kind of a bloody hallway down the middle between the two. And once that was done, the two parties to the covenant would walk between the two halves together essentially illustrating the declaration, may the same thing happen to me or to you if we break our agreement with one another. They took their agreements seriously. 
In Genesis, and remember, uh, the first five books of the Bible are all essentially different chapters of of the same book. In, In Genesis, God enters a covenant with Abraham, promising to be his God and the God for Abraham's descendants, promising to give childless Abraham and his wife offspring so that there could be descendants for God to be the God of, to give them a land to call their own, and to bless the entire world through them. That was the 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 agreement between God and Abraham. But something extraordinary happens when that covenant is cut in Genesis 15. Abraham cuts the animals in two, but then goes into a deep trance, and he has a vision of God alone passing between the two halves, meaning that the entire obligation for fulfilling the covenant that God is making with Abraham fell on God alone. He will be the one who will cause Abraham to come to him and be Abraham's God. He alone will be the one who causes Abraham's descendants to be uh, his. And he alone will be the one who will give them the land to call their own. He alone will cause all the nations of the world to be blessed through him. Abraham's sole obligation was just to trust that God would keep his word. And so the words that close Exodus 2 are letting us know that nothing that has transpired to this point has been random. Israel has never been alone. Though the plan has remained hidden from Jewish eyes for the moment, God was raising up a deliverer for his people. And when it comes to his people, we are being told at the end of Exodus 2 that God is always up to something. So what is he up to? Let me give you three very quick things here. First, he's providing He's providing. The the people of Israel were in bondage. They were the objects of murderous rage by a despotic king. They were completely powerless. So what is it that God could provide for them? Advice? I mean, is that what they needed? Did they just need someone to come in and, you know, teach them how to organize and to unionize and to demand better pay conditions and working conditions? Hardly. So what could God provide them? Encouragement? I mean, is that what they needed? Uh, Did they need someone to just come alongside them and say, hang in there, buddy. It's going to get better. Things are going to come your way soon. Is, Is that what they needed? Hardly. So what could God provide them? Morality? Uh, Was that what they needed? Did they just need someone to teach them? what righteous living was all about so that they could tip the scale in their favor and maybe get God, a God's attention? Hardly. So what did God provide them? Only one thing, a deliverer. Enslaved, powerless people don't need advice and encouragement and a moral code. They need a deliverer. And that's what God had been up to in Exodus 2, even though no one, including the deliverer himself, knew that was what was happening. God was providing his people a deliverer because when it comes to his people, God is always up to something. He's also guiding. He's providing. 
he's guiding. I want you to think of all of the coincidences of Exodus 2. The baby Moses just so happens to fall under the protection of Pharaoh's daughter. The baby Moses just so happens to be nursed by his biological mother. In other words, Moses just so happens to fall into a household where he could learn the ways of the Egyptian court, which is going to come in very handy when he begins to do the work that God has for him later in Exodus, and also just so happens to be cared for by a Hebrew woman where he would learn the plight of the Jewish people. Of course, we are to understand that none of that was just so happens. None of it was a coincidence. God was guiding the circumstances of Moses' life to prepare him to fulfill God's purposes for him. The same is true when he's forced to flee from Egypt. How could God deliver someone if the deliverer wasn't in the same zip code as those that needed deliverance? The answer actually won't come until we get to chapter 3, but it was while tending his father-in-law's sheep that Moses hears from God and is commissioned by God to be a deliverer for his people. So even in the midst of this seeming dead end, what on earth could God be doing with Moses, way out in Midian, it seems even in that seeming dead end, God was orchestrating everything about Moses' life to prepare him to fulfill his purpose for him. God is always up to something. And the most important of these three things is this. God is providing, God is guiding, but God is remembering. Now, when we say God remembers something. Our modern understanding of remember causes us to miss the point. For us to remember something communicates that we have forgotten something. Julie says, did you stop by the grocery store on the way home? I have forgotten. She's reminding me. I remember far too late for it to be a good evening. but I am remembering. We, we remember forgotten names and the location of forgotten keys. But the usage of remember in the Old Testament carries the idea, listen to me, of meditating on something, of constantly calling it to mind, of dwelling on something. And that's what is happening here. God isn't saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that guy, Abraham. They didn't have kids, and I said, sure, I'll do you solid. (laughs) That's not what's going on. When we are told at the end of this that God knows and God remembers, we're being told he's never forgotten. He's never forgotten, and he's never stopped working on behalf of of his people, even though they had a hard time seeing it and grasping it at the moment. So God is always up to something on behalf of his people. He is providing. He is guiding. He is remembering his promises. And lest any of us miss the entire point of our time together this morning, None of what I've just shared with you is meant to be a history lesson to tell you what God used to be up to. Because of Jesus, God is always at work. 
in the lives of his people. He is always at work on your behalf. In the life of followers of Jesus, God is always up to something. He's providing you a deliverer in Jesus. You say, well, he provided me a deliverer in Jesus. I mean, I got saved. I, I was, came to Christ March 26, 1978. So uh, he, I, I know that, 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 he, that he delivered me, but he, how do you mean he's delivering me? I'm, I'm just referring to what Scripture says. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus is currently interceding for us, meaning that he is standing right now between us and the Father, praying, as it were, on our behalf. 1 John 2.1 tells us that Jesus is our advocate, meaning that when we sin, he rises up on our behalf and testifies before the Father on our behalf. I want you to stop and think about it. When we sin, and all of us sin, and if you're serious, if you're serious about your relationship with Jesus, God is going to bring your sin to your mind. I cannot have a quiet time. I cannot have time alone with the Lord when he does not bring my sin to mind. And Satan wants to run in and say, aha, sinner. And in that very moment, 1 John 2, 1 tells us that Jesus rises before the Father and says, wait a minute. They repented of it. They turned away from it. And as a result of that, my blood covered it. And you've judged it already. So step back in judgment. That's what I mean when I say that I'm being delivered. I'm being delivered every second of my life because of the saving grace of Jesus. That's what he is up to in our lives even when we sleep. He's also guiding the circumstances of our lives. There is nothing random. Nothing random. I mean, I look back, I've been in vocational ministry for 37 years, and I look back on some segments of my vocational ministry life and think, what was that about? And frankly, the people I was leading look back on that and think, what was that about? And sometimes I have answers. I know specifically what God was meaning to accomplish in my life or in the life of the people that he had called me to lead. Sometimes I haven't answers, but there, there are significant sections of it where I say, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know what God was up to. All I know is I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be leading you if it hadn't been for all of that. And so when I look back, I, I just know I may not get it and it may sound like wasted time at a dead end, but God was working in the circumstances, in the dirt of my life to bring about his purposes. He is guiding. And finally, he's remembering. He is meditating on the salvation and the new life that he has promised us through Christ. And he never forsakes us. And we are never alone if we follow Jesus. We all have those moments, though, don't we? When, like the Jewish people, we feel alone. 
And in those moments, Satan does his best to convince us that we're really all by ourselves. My prayer this morning is that, that if, if that's you, if you feel alone and cut off from God, that, that you will remember the constant activity of God on your behalf. And, and if you don't follow Jesus, my prayer is that you will reach out to the one who is readily, tirelessly ready to work on your behalf and be your Savior. Let's go to the Lord right now in prayer.